0: we We are uh, today. We are starting chapter uh, 36. And uh, this is the introduction or beginning of a of a new uh, Toledot, as I mentioned last week. And uh, so I thought we're about two thirds of the way through the book of Genesis. Uh, we've been working on this since I think. May of two years ago. So we've been on this about two years, uh, and we've got about another year to go, but we are making progress. I told you we'd be thorough, but not exhaustive, and that's what we've done. So at uh, any rate, we are um, uh, about two-thirds of the way through, and I thought today uh, that it would be good uh, as we move into this next uh, Talodot to do some review and kind of uh, get our bearings a little bit again in the book of Genesis since we're, we're kind of at this uh, transition point in the story. And uh, so I'm throwing out that word paladot again. And uh, I guess the question that I would put to you guys at this point is do any of you remember what a paladot is? Okay, uh, there are a number of them. Uh, there are actually ten. Ten in the book of Genesis. Uh, actually, uh, as you'll see today, you could actually say there are eleven, but but we think of ten Talodots in the book of Genesis. Okay, so they are... There's something in the book of Genesis. What are they?
1: Geneology?
0: Okay, they're kind of like genealogies. The word Talodot actually means a genealogical record. Okay, and... Uh, We call them Talodos because that's the Hebrew word that's translated as we see in uh, chapter 36 in verse 1. It says, now these are the records of the generations of Esau, uh, that is Edom. That phrase there, the records of the generations, is a translation of the Hebrew word Okay. And you'll notice as you read through the book of Genesis that periodically you'll come across these identical words. These are the records of the generations of so-and-so. And so so, uh, there are these records or these uh, accounts of the generations of various individuals that appear throughout the book of Genesis. And there are 10 of them. Uh, And so they basically provide for us, as we mentioned at the beginning of our study two years ago, and you all remember this very well. Uh, uh, they provide for us an outline of the book of Genesis. Okay. So, uh, Genesis is a, Genesis is, of course, a foundational book. It's, it's really the, it's really the foundation of our faith. Everything we believe goes back to the book of Genesis. Okay. And that's why it's so important. That's why, Uh, I don't make any apologies for taking as long as we're taking to work through the book of Genesis because everything in the Christian faith ultimately comes back to the book of Genesis. It comes back to the purposes of God in creation, the fall of man, the plan of redemption, uh, the messianic line. uh, Everything finds its roots in the book of Genesis. So Genesis is a foundational book for us. And so so it's really important for us as we've seen it's important for us to really understand it and to have a grip on this book because we as we move on through the rest of the story of redemption and the plan of redemption throughout the scriptures repeatedly we're finding ourselves finding our footing so to speak by going back to the book of genesis and so it's crucial for us to understand that. So one of the reasons I harp on this thing about polydots is because it gives us a an outline. It gives us a framework by which to hang all these various things that we study throughout the book of Genesis. Now some of us people are we're obsessive about outlines. Okay, I'm kind of I'm that kind of a person. I like outlines because it it helps me think. It orders my thoughts. Some of you may not find them quite that inspiring, but to show how how you know how geeky and how strange I am I actually enjoyed outlining when I was in school okay in grammar class and stuff I enjoyed outlines and uh, so that's why I harp on that and if you're not one of those kind of people well tough luck (laughs) but for those of us that are it's really helpful because then as I go back and I think through the book of Genesis it helps me to organize the book of Genesis in my mind and to understand the progression of Genesis if you don't see the outline then Genesis tends to be just a series of stories okay and you don't see the progression and the significance of the progression that the book of Genesis provides and we've talked about all this stuff before so this is all review but one of the reasons I'm reviewing it is because it is so important that we have we have a real grip on this book okay and so I thought well this is a good time a good chance for us uh, as we're moving from one Talodot to another uh, to do a little bit of review. Now, uh, as we're beginning this Talodot of Esau in chapter 36, uh, this would actually be the ninth Taladot of the book of Genesis. So so we have this one, and this one is only about a chapter long. And then we have the following Taladot which begins in chapter 37 in verse 2. And uh, that Taladot then takes us all the way through the rest of the book of Genesis. Okay. So that tells us something about Toledots. This one that we're beginning today is a chapter long and we're going to spend a couple of weeks on it. And then the next one uh, begins in chapter 37 and goes all the way to the end of Genesis. And we'll spend, a, you know, probably a number of months on it. OK, so what does that tell us about well, some are more important than
1: others.
0: <laughs> Well, at least some are more substantive. Some are much, much more detailed than others. OK, uh, And uh, so they they actually vary in length. Now, the the one we're looking at beginning today is not the shortest one. The shortest Taladot is the Taladot of Ishmael. Okay, and that's just a few verses long. And we looked at that a number of weeks ago or months ago. And actually, we just looked because it was so brief. We looked at it in the context of another study. We didn't even devote an entire study to it. But so there are these. 10 Taladots in the book of Genesis. But before we begin the Taladots of Genesis, we have the Prelude. Okay. And the Prelude is basically chapter 1 of Genesis. Okay. So what I want to do here for just a few minutes uh, is just kind of review, just go down through the Taladots and see if we can remember what they are and what they're about. Okay. So first we have the Prelude. And the Prelude... uh, Wow, this is brown. Cool. Cool. the prelude begins in chapter one, verse one, of course, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and goes through chapter two, verse three. And what is that prelude about? OK, it's the story of creation. OK, some people make a big thing about there are two stories of creation. Well, once you see the outline of Genesis, then it begins to make sense why you have this detailed account of creation in chapter one. And then you have what seems like a different story of creation in chapter two. Okay, but this next uh, the next uh, or the first holiday then that we get. So these holidays are kind of like chapters. So we have a prelude in in chapter one into chapter two. And then we have the first holiday. And what is that one titled? OK, the holiday of the heavens and the earth. Which brings up the issue incidentally, I, you know, at the beginning of uh, uh, the beginning of our study in Genesis, I handed out a handout that had all this on it. You may still have that. Uh, <clears throat> if not, if somebody wants those, I could print up some more next week. I didn't think to get that done this week. but anyway, the first one is called "The Heavens and the Earth," And that brings up the, the question of, how are these Talloido named? How do they get their names? OK? And this particular one, this first one, is misleading. So, but it raises a sub. We've talked about this before, though, so you should know this. Some
1: of them are about the families, that are, I remember right, the families that, that are in that line, which make this one different because it's not about the families in that line.
0: Okay, okay. And I think what Jim's trying to say well, here, yeah, but, yeah, <laughs> what Jim is trying to say is they're given a name... And the Talad is actually about the descendants yeah. which issue from that individual. Okay. Now, why would the first Taladot be named the heavens and the earth? Rather than being given a name. There's no, There's no people yet. Okay. So, So, the first one is named the heavens and the earth. But it's about the first descendants, if we will. But they aren't actually descendants. So, the first uh, but the first people that we have, OK, who are whose record is recorded for us in the first halda, are who? Adam and Eve, OK, and their immediate descendants. OK, so this story is really about the creation of man. OK, so uh, so this is why you have. Um, this is why you have. Uh, what appear to be two different stories of creation in the scriptures. You have the you have the 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 main story of creation in chapter one. But then you have chapter two, the story of creation. But there the idea is really it's focusing on something different. It's not focusing on the creation of the world as such, but it's focusing on the creation of man. So the real focus of Genesis two is not so much the creation of the world and all its details, but rather ultimately how. How creation culminates in the creation of man. Okay, so it begins to focus then on the creation of man and the story of Adam and Eve, uh, of course, and uh, and and their uh, and and that immediate story that follows from that. And of course, one of the probably the, the most crucial theological uh, story that we have in in, the, in this Talmud. Is is in addition to the creation of Adam and Eve, is what the most important the fall? Okay, so this covers the fall. Okay, and so this is a very important polynote. Okay, then the next polynote, and let me give you uh, as I go through these. Let me give you the uh, uh, the references on these. uh that this one begins in, in chapter two, verse four, it runs through four twenty six. OK, so the next Taladot begins in chapter five and runs for a couple chapters. And what's that one? OK, it's the Taladot of Adam. OK, and just real quickly, kind of glancing down through that, what are the what are the subjects that are covered in the Taladot of Adam? Remember, it's not really so much about Adam because Adam was covered in this Torah. It's about his descendants. And so what are some of the stories that we get, some of the crucial stories that we get in the story of Adam and his descendants? Okay, Cain and Abel. That's part of it, okay? Uh, That whole story about Cain and Abel. And, of course, then becomes the importance of the birth of Seth. That's in that section, okay? Uh Uh, what else is in that? that the, the story the, the of Adam takes us all the way up. Uh, uh, through a whole line of history, actually a couple thousand years or so. So what else is included in that story of whom? Okay, no, not Noah, because that gets us into another Taladat. But up before Noah, we have a couple key figures. Enoch, OK, the story of Enoch, the guy who walked with God and he was not for God, took him. OK, and then we also have the story it's very brief, just mentions it. But the guy, Methuselah, and we talked about Methuselah, that's all in that, in that uh, Talodot of Adam. OK,
1: yeah,
0: are oh, are they? Yeah, uh, you're right. They are. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I they yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They're up and there. Thought, yeah. you're, you're right. Yeah. OK, OK. Uh, and and the other thing that's really stressed in this Taladot is the wickedness of man. So we get to that story that's leading up through the prelude to the flood, okay, is the wickedness of man. So then that brings us to the next Taladot, which is what? Noah, okay? Now, Noah's a little different. The Taladot of Noah is about what? Okay, it's about Noah. It's about the flood, okay? So it's just about Noah and the flood. So it's a little bit different. Okay, and that runs from 6-9 uh, from, uh, nine through 9:29. Okay, and then uh, picking up in uh, chapter 10, we have the next paladot, which is what? Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who are what? Who are those three guys? Noah's sons. Okay, so we have the paladot of Noah's sons. So you see right here that in this in this section here we kind of have, we kind of break from you know this is the exception that proves the rule type of thing so that the Taladot of Noah is really about Noah and the Taladot about Noah's sons is really not so much about Noah's sons but it is about noah's uh, the descendants of uh, of Noah's sons okay so it lists all those uh for us beginning in ten one and down through eleven nine and uh what do we just, What do we learn that's important in this tablet of Noah's sons? Okay, we get to the Tower of Babel. Okay, uh, what else? Chapter ten is made up mostly of this. We call chapter ten the what? The Table of Nations. Okay, so this tablet of Noah's son tells us about where all the nations came from. Okay? And, and it kind of traces the beginning of the origins of all the nations as they spread over the earth and then how they spread over the earth and why they spread over the earth through the story of the Tower of Babel. So this is a very crucial, uh, very crucial Talodot. So I'll just put down here the Tower of Babel, uh, but it also includes, of course, the Table of Nations. OK, uh, and uh, then that takes us down to the next Taladot uh which we pick up in chapter eleven verse ten. what is that? Okay. The Ptolemot of Shem. Who's Shem? Okay. He's the one of Noah's sons. Uh let me back let me get this reference up here. Uh, this is uh eleven ten through 26. OK, this is a fairly short one. And uh, something like that. Yeah. OK. OK. And and the point is, and I'll get to this in a minute. It's tracing the righteous line. OK, so basically the Talodot of Shem and remember, Shem was included in this Taladot too. OK, so this Taladot focuses generally on the three sons and is, is trying to communicate to us where the nations came from and how they spread over the earth. Then it goes back to Shem, who is one of these three sons here, and gives us a Talodot just devoted to him alone. And the idea is to trace the line, the righteous line, or the seed of the woman, so to speak, all the way down from Noah to trace that on uh, on through. So this is basically uh, just tracing the righteous line. Okay? It's a fairly brief one. And it takes us from... uh, Down all the way through past the Tower of Babel and down to the next Taladot. And the next Taladot is what? Okay, that's Terah. Who's Terah? Okay, that's Abraham's father. Okay, so if we have the Taladot of Terah, what is the Taladot of Terah about? It's about Abraham, okay? So, we spent a long time in that Talodot. It's the story of Abraham's relatives uh, in Haran. It's the story of uh, Abraham's call and Abraham's life of faith, okay? And... uh And that Taladat goes from 1127 through 2511. So that's the longest one we've had so far. Okay. And then that takes us to a very short, to the shortest Taladat of all, which is in chapter 25, verses 12 through 16. And that is what? Ishmael. Okay. So there's an entire... Uh, entire Taladot devoted to Ishmael. What did I say the references were? Twelve what? Uh, uh, what was the chapter? Twenty twenty-five. That's right. Okay. Three, Eight
1: uh,
0: six uh, through eighteen. Okay. All right. Okay. And who was Ishmael? Okay, he's Abraham's son by Hagar. Now it's. Significant here. We're tracing the righteous line all the way through. But we come to we come down here and we get an entire Taladot devoted to Ishmael. Okay? Just a short one, not very long, just a few verses long, but the scripture just pauses right here and tells us about Ishmael's descendants. Okay? And then what's the next one? Pardon? Isaac, okay? So we have the Taladot of Isaac. And uh, that begins in 25, 19. And uh, oh, well, and that goes up through uh, where we've been through thirty five. What's the last verse of thirty five? Twenty nine. OK, twenty nine. OK. Uh, and the Taladot of Isaac is about whom? Pardon? Jacob and Esau. OK. Somewhat about Esau, but primarily about Jacob. Okay, so it's the story of Isaac's descendants. And as we see, it's a very important polydot. We've covered a lot of material. We've talked about it for many chapters. And uh, and it talks about Esau, talks about Jacob and their whole competition and then reconciliation and everything. And it actually takes us up. This uh, takes us up all the way through. Jacob's return back to the Oaks of Mamre to, to uh, be with his father right before his father dies, and then the death of his father, and that's where we got last week. And that brings us to today's Taladot, which is what? It's Esau, okay? And Esau uh, Taladot begins in 36 1, and it goes through chapter 37, verse 1, so it's basically a chapter long, okay? And this is just about the descendants of Esau. Now, what is unique about the Taladot of Esau uh, is that it's actually divided into two parts. Okay, so uh, if you look in chapter 36, uh, you'll notice that in verse one, it says, now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom." And then it tells us some things about Esau, about his wives and about his move over to Mount Seir, okay? So it's really about Esau's move to Mount Seir. That's the first part. Then the second part begins in chapter uh, in chapter 36, verse 9, and it says, these then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. And so we have the second part. So it actually sounds kind of like two separate Talodots because it begins with that same introduction that each of the Taladots begins with. But in reality, both of these are about Esau and Esau's descendants. Uh, So we really consider it to be one Taladot divided into two parts. The first part being about Esau's move to Mount Seir. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And then the second part, which is quite lengthy, and we'll try to cover all of that next week, all the way down to the end of the chapter, has to do with his many descendants, the the, the sons of Esau, the chieftains, the kings, and et cetera, et cetera, that it talks about. Throughout the rest of the chapter. And then that gets us to chapter 37, uh, beginning in verse 2, and that's the last Taladot, and that's what's its title? out of what? Of, no, excuse me? Jacob. Jacob. Okay, so then we have the out of Jacob, and that begins in 37, 2, and runs through chapter 50, verse. Whatever, the last verse of the Bible. Uh, Genesis. Okay. 26, that's right. Okay. Through Genesis 50, 26. Okay. But the Talmud of Jacob is about his children. Okay. And primarily, which two children? Joseph is the primary one. And he'll be dominant throughout this whole tale. But there's also a chapter devoted to whom? His brother his brother <laughs> which brother very important brother judah okay so there's a chapter also devoted to the story of judah and tamar okay so that's the outline that we've been working our way through and i keep talking about taladots and and so this is all just by way of review we covered uh, all of this before and uh And uh, and as I say, in a couple weeks we'll move on and we'll begin the Talit of Jacob. And when we do that, I'm going to give you a pop quiz and see how many things you can remember without looking in your Bible. Okay? So I hope I can remember to do that.
1: Yeah, you can't leave the island until you have until you have all of this down. But
0: but this then gives you a frame. So now you see that Genesis is not just a collection of stories, but there's actually a there's a progression to it. There's a, there's a redemptive history going on here as God is moving things forward from that great tragedy in the garden and the fall of man and, and the corruption of mankind. And then God immediately institutes a plan of redemption and the rest of Genesis is showing us how God is moving us forward in that direction. Okay. Well, the other thing that we've been talking about as we have going through Genesis, we've been talking about these polydots. But the other thing, and I've already alluded to this a couple times, is we've been talking about these two lines. Okay, in Genesis chapter three, in verse 15, when God comes to the garden after the fall and he speaks to the various parties involved in the fall. The first one he addresses is uh, uh, with his prophecy of the future is uh, can you talk about God prophesying? I guess you can uh, of his prophecy of the future is he says to the serpent in chapter in chapter three and verse 15. He says uh, uh, he, he pronounces in him that uh, his uh, his seed will be uh, that the woman's seed will ultimately crush his head, that he will bruise the woman's seed, and the woman's seed will crush his head, and then he says that there's going to be enmity between your seed and the woman's seed forever, et cetera, et cetera et cetera so there's a prophecy about these two separate lines that begins in Genesis chapter three verse fifteen the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent is not a reference to demons or you know anything like that, but it's a reference to Those who follow after Satan, okay. Those who obey and submit to Satan, okay. So basically, it's a reference to unbelievers, okay. And the seed of the woman is a reference, first of all, to this line of descendants that's going to proceed from Eve through Seth and all the way down through this what I call the righteous line, even though that's kind of a misnomer, all the way down through this righteous line, ultimately to bring us to Christ. And the, and the birth of the Messiah. And so scripture is recording this progression of the righteous line. And so as we go through the book of Genesis, as I said, when we started, we're, it's kind of like we're, we're walking down this road following the righteous line. And we're following it through all these different individuals that we've talked about here and many others. So we're following it through Adam and through Seth and through Enoch and through Methuselah and through Noah and through Shem and through Terah and through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And we're following this righteous line, okay? But as I mentioned, when we started our study of Genesis, we're not only going to be doing that following this road, but periodically we're going to come to a branch in the road, a fork in the road, if you will, where one of these other branches takes off Okay, for example the branch of Ishmael Okay, and and it kind of takes off and so as we're walking down this road we pause momentarily and we go and we kind of walk over this road a little ways and we only go so far and then we come back and we get on the main road and we keep moving Okay, that's what we've been doing all the way through the book of Genesis and now we're going to do that again we're going to take a substantial detour here for a couple weeks today's lesson and next week's lesson and we're going to look at this story of Esau and Esau's descendants. It's kind of like it's kind of like you're exploring a trail out in the woods somewhere, okay? And and you know where this trail's going, and you're really excited about being out there, and it's a real adventure for those of you who like hiking in the woods. And you you know where it's going, and you know it's going to get you there, and so you want to follow it. But as you're following this trail, every once in a while you see another trail, and it goes, you know, and you go, well, where does that go, you know? And if you're like me. You're kind of inclined to go. I'm going to check this out a little ways, and you go, but, but I'm still focused on this main trail over here. But I'll go over and, and I'll kind of go up this little trail and say, Oh, that's cool, and learn some things, and then I come back and I get on the main trail because I I've, I've got a destination I'm going to. That's what we're doing in Genesis. Okay, and today and tomorrow uh, next Sunday we're going to be taking one of those little detours, and we're going to look a little bit at the story of Esau and Esau's descendants. So so that was all by way of review. And uh, I've been wanting to do that actually for several months, just kind of go back and review all that for your sakes. Uh, so that was the point of all that. Now, last week we finished our, our study of the Taladot of Isaac, and uh, that brought us up to Isaac's death. And uh, just as we always do, we like to stop and kind of review what we talked about last week. So, what do you remember that we talked about last week in that last part of the Taladot of Isaac? Okay. Rachel died. Any significance to that? Okay. Okay. And those. Okay. Okay. One of the things we talked about was that this event in the life of Jacob, the death of his, of his favorite wife, Rachel, uh, as she's giving birth to Benjamin, their 12th son, his 12th son, her second son, is that there's this, this profound event in the life of Jacob, the death of somebody he really loves. And, and, and the birth of this son, who's so important and so precious to him, Okay, and so it's important on that level. But the other thing we talked about is it really is a picture for us of something far greater. And so it's one of those times in Scripture when the Lord just kind of takes some time and He sets aside a canvas and He just paints a picture for us. Clear back in the Old Testament, way back before people even understood what He was drawing a picture of, He's painting a picture of something. And in the death, of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin. What is he painting a picture of? Well, that's part of it. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. OK, it's, it's a picture of Israel's anguish and Israel's suffering as it waits for the Messiah and then the culmination of of the Of the weight, as the Messiah comes and is born, and so, as Teresa pointed out, he has really Benjamin has two names: his first name is son of weeping that's that's the name his mother gives to him, and the mother there, of course, is always representative of israel and and so the mother there her her name for her son is the son of weeping. And Israel goes through all of this suffering and all of this anguish and it culminates, of course, in the slaughter of the innocents at the hand of Herod uh, right after the birth of Christ. So there's all this weeping that's associated with uh, with the birth of Benjamin that's also associated with the birth of the Messiah and it's represented by uh, by that name, son of weeping. But that's what Rachel calls Benjamin, uh, calls her son, but but Jacob calls him Benjamin, which means what? Son Son of my right hand. Okay, and so this is the other name we have for Christ, isn't it? That the father calls him to his right hand. He calls him the son of his right hand. And so even as Jacob calls Benjamin, the son of his right hand, God, the father, calls this son who was born out of Israel's weeping and Israel's suffering, doesn't call him the son of weeping, but calls him, as to, uh, calls him his right hand. Okay? And so, it, so this, this really sad story, in many ways sad, of course it's happy too because the baby is born through it, of Rachel and Benjamin uh, here in this chapter is really a picture, a glorious picture for us of something much much, much greater is going to happen, which is a, the promise of the coming of the Messiah. And God is painting that picture for us so that we will understand more of what's involved in the coming of the Christ. Okay? So, we talked about that. What else did we talk about? We
1: talked about Lulon. Okay. His, his, uh, his grateful act. You mentioned the the uh, idea that he was trying to uh, take over it, as it were, or show the uh, piety uh, that he was going to be in the place of his father, and uh, and that makes a lot of sense. I also read a commentary this last week who said, who suggested that he was also upset because his mother. Even after the death, of Rachel, his mother, still did not have any consequence in his eyes, in the eyes of his father, mm-hmm. and so therefore he was, by in some way, trying to go in and, and slap him in the face. Or, yeah. or well,
0: actually, we did allude to that a little bit because it talked about how one of his motivations may have been to ensure that uh, to ensure that uh, Rachel's uh, maid did not. Than take Rachel's place yeah. in in the hierarchy. So uh, so it's quite possible that that's in fact what was going on. Yeah, there is that possibility. Yeah. And, and what is the significance of Reuben's act there? What's the consequence of that?
1: Lost his yeah.
0: Well, yeah. He lost his birthright. He lost his place of preeminence in the family. And in fact, the tribe of Reuben, if you will, just. Disappears. I mean, I don't, I don't mean they disappear to the proof, poof, but they just in the in the story of Israel from that point on, they are they're really kind of out of the story, uh, and uh, so uh, so we have then uh, the subsequent appointment of the sons of Joseph. To, Joseph has two sons, as we'll see later in Genesis. And and one of the sons really takes the place of Reuben as far as one of the 12 tribes are concerned. But he forfeits his birthright as did Simeon and Levi by their earlier acts of violence. And so the birthright actually passes down to Judah. And so Judah becomes uh, the one through whom the Messiah is to be born. Okay, so that's the consequence of all that. Well, with all of that being said, all of that that we've done so far is review. Uh, So in the little time we have left, uh, let's pick it up in chapter 36 and, and just look at these first eight verses. And there's just a few things that I want to point out from these eight verses. It says, now, these are the records of the generations of Esau, es- that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, also, Basemoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basemoth bore Rule, and Aholabama bore uh, Jeush and Jalem and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Okay, well, who is Esau? Okay, well, let me put it this way. That's true, incidentally. That is a correct answer, not the answer I'm looking for. According to this passage. Who is Esau? How do you know that? Because it says it twice. Okay. And actually, as we go on down through the story, we're going to see that it says it more than twice as we get into the next part of the genealogy or of the Talodot. Okay. So, for some reason, the narrator wants us to understand that Esau is Edom. Where does that name Edom come from? Okay, it means red. Where does it come from? How did Esau end up with this other name? It like he He did. He was red when he was born. But it is interesting that it doesn't tell us that the name Edom is associated with him at his birth. It's associated with him at a later point. Oh, Yeah, yeah. When he sold his birthright. Remember that? He sold his birthright for a pot of stew. And the stew was red. Okay? And he comes in and he says to his brother Jacob, he says, give me some of that red stuff. And the narrator parenthetically says at that point, therefore, he is called Edom. Okay? Now, we get here to this part of the story. We're taking this little sidetrack off the main main trail here that we're on in Genesis we're taking this little sidetrack to examine the story of Esau and Esau's descendants and he begins the story and in the first eight verses he tells us twice that Esau is Edom. Now remember that this is written primarily for the children of Israel first and then for us so why do you think why do you think there's this emphasis that Esau is Edom? right off the bat in this in this, or this genealogy of, of Esau okay it's, it's not the righteous line uh, that's part of it but if you were if you were uh, an Israelite sitting in your tent out there in the middle of the wilderness on your way to the promised land what would be the significance of this story or of this account. Uh, okay, okay. They're going to encounter the Edomites, the people of Edom, as they progress towards the promised land. Okay, there's a whole story there and it comes out in the book of Numbers. Okay, they're going to encounter these people. They're going to be living next door to these people from now on, once they get into the land of promise and, and and secure the land for themselves, the Edomites are going to be their neighbors. Okay? And so, it's important for them to understand these people who are going to be your neighbors over there on Mount Seir to the south uh, southeast of, of the land of promise there, uh, those, uh, those people are your brothers. They're connected to you. They're related to you. And he wants them to understand that. And and you'll see then as you go through the rest of the Pentateuch and as God gives them instructions, first of all, about moving towards the promised land and as it becomes uh, necessary uh, at one point to go through the land of Edom and that's hence the conflict in, in the book of Numbers it becomes necessary for them to, to go through the land of Edom. At least it appears that it's necessary for them to go through the land of Edom. God has to give them very special instructions about how they do that, because they're your brothers. So you're going to treat them different. You're not going to treat them the way you treat other people. Okay. So we, so they, they, are kind of they get a special dispensation, if you will, because they are, they are uh, uh, Israel's brothers. Okay. Uh, there are other things that he, he, uh, for example, with uh, some people groups, God says they cannot become uh, part of the, of the, uh, uh, the righteous family. They can't, they can't become part of the family line for ten generations. With the Edomites, it's two generations. Okay, So there are various instructions that God gives that are special regarding Edom because they are Israel's brothers and they are to be treated as such. Okay, So Israel is, from the very outset, is placed in a position of having a disposition of favor and kindness and respect towards Esau more so than their other neighbors and the other nations around them. Okay? That being said, for the rest of us, not being Israelites, the question is, what is the significance? That twice he tells us here that Esau is Edom. Okay? Well, if we remember the origin of the name and the fact that the narrator here twice emphasizes that Esau is Edom, what is he reminding us of? Okay? He just, you know, it just immediately brings back to our mind this whole event early in the life of Esau, many, many years before when he had despised his birthright. And so, uh, kind of like what Karen said, it's it's kind of reminding us he's not of the righteous line. And he's not of the righteous line because he's made a choice not to be of the righteous line. He has made a choice to reject the birthright. Okay? And so, so this is kind of thrust out in our minds as we read this account or this story that here is this guy who he comes in, he's famished, he's hungry, he's hot, he's sweaty. He sees this good-looking pot of stew that his brother has made and he says, give me that stew. And Jacob says, what? First, tell me your birthright. First, and what is Esau's response? I'm done. I'm done. I got to eat. And Esau makes a choice. To choose the flesh over the promise. He makes a choice to choose immediate gratification of his physical needs over all that's involved in the promise of God. And that's what we're reminded of. That this guy Esau and his descendants after him are people who are characterized, as are all those who are not of the promise line, a people who, is characterized, who are characterized by the choice of the flesh over the promise By the choice of immediate gratification over the life of faith. And as I was thinking about this yesterday, I was thinking, uh, uh, Well, let me back up here. You'll notice in these first eight verses, there are several things that are pointed out to us. One is that by this association of Esau with Edom, we are reminded of Esau's choice of of the pot of stew over the birthright. And then we are reminded of Esau's choice of Canaanite women. And then we are reminded of Esau's choice to leave the promised land and go to Seir. And so what we see is that Esau makes a series of choices in his life in which he values something else more than he values the promises of God and the life of faith. And as I was meditating on this yesterday, I was thinking, okay, the first mistake he made that we know about was when he chose the birthright. The second mistake he made when he rejected the birthright, the second mistake he made was when he chose the Canaanite women. You remember that story back early, back before we even got into the story of Jacob It told us about Esau choosing these Canaanite women and that didn't please his parents because they wanted him to choose from his own family line and. And so eventually, ultimately, he goes out and he marries this woman from uh, the daughters of Ishmael. But remember all of that from before. He made that choice for the Canaanite women as opposed to going back to Haran and finding a wife from his own family. Okay. Which is obviously what Abraham wanted for Isaac and what Isaac wanted for his children. Okay. Now, as I was thinking about that yesterday, I was thinking, okay, so here's Esau, and he's, he, you know, he's getting, you know, he's of age now. He's virile. He and he wants to start a family. He wants a wife. And so, what does he do? He just runs out, finds the first local girl that'll marry him, and yeah, you know, I don't know if he found the first one, but you know, he goes out and he finds a couple of local girls and he marries them. But the implication of the story is, what should he have done? Given the convictions of his parents. Should have gone back to Haran. He should have gone back to Haran and found a wife there. Well, what's the problem with that? If you're Esau, what's the problem with that? Too long. A bird in the hands work two in the bush, folks. Takes too long. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking in our lives how often that's true. Is that, is that a choice is set before us. and And we have the option of immediately getting something or waiting to get something. And and that immediately getting that thing oftentimes involves walking in the flesh. And that the thing that God wants us to have often involves waiting. You ever notice that? So oftentimes, the thing God promises us we have to wait for. But there's this other option out here and we can have it right now. See, that's the the choice that Esau is presented with. But Esau is Edom. Esau is the guy who lives for the here and now. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So I'm going to take this. Why does God do that? Why does God give us these choices where the thing that's available immediately is not of Him and the thing we have to wait for is of Him? Why does He do that? Why doesn't he do it the other way around? I mean, then we'd make the right choice more often, right? Why does he do it this way? I think
1: it has to do with faith. Because if we have to wait, we have to have faith and trust God that he will provide.
0: And if we go after the needed thing, you
1: know, I doesn't make any faith in do it. Yeah, absolutely. So it
0: doesn't It is our way of telling God that we believe he is good and that He loves us. And that whatever He has for us, however long we have to wait for it, is worth it. Because He is worth it. It's our act of worship. It's our act of devotion. It's our act of love. It's our act of faith to wait on God. Hence, all the times in Scripture it tells us and enjoins us to wait upon the Lord. And tells us that those that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not sing. And But Esau, Edom, he didn't live that way. Esau lives for the here and now. And so, I know this is going to rattle your cage, folks, but all of our life we've been taught that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush and now we discover from Esau's example that it's just the other way around. That the two in the bush we have to wait for beat the bird in the hand. And that the promise of God trumps what's immediately available to us and out there for our taking. But Esau never learned that lesson. And so we come then here to the last of these verses, uh, these, these eight verses. And his final decision is he's going to leave Canaan and he's going to go to Seir. Now, we understand the need for the separation. We've seen this before. Where? With Lot and Abraham, right? That Lot and Abraham, are they're too big for the land and so they've got to separate. And so Abraham gives to Lot a choice and Lot chooses what? I'm going to go east. Remember that whole analogy of east in scripture, I'm going to go east and I'm going to go to Sodom. And he goes to Sodom and we see the disastrous results in his life. Because he goes east and as we say, east represents, it's kind of a picture for us uh, all the way through Genesis up to this point, it's been a picture for us of people moving away from God, moving away from the people of God, moving away from the promises of God, moving away from the blessings of God. And that's what Lot did. And we saw the disastrous result in his life. And so here we see that Esau is Edom. He chooses according to the flesh. And I don't know where what his other options were. I don't know where he could have moved. But he moves to the east. And he moves away from Canaan. You notice how it stresses it. He took his wives, he took his sons, he took his daughters, he took his whole household, he took his livestock, he took his cattle, he took all that he had accumulated or acquired in the land of Canaan. It's what it's saying is he didn't leave a thing in Canaan, he totally divested himself of any connection with the promise. Now, we're not surprised at that because that's a decision he made early in his life when he sold his birthright. So he's just living out consistently the decision that he made early in his life. And like I say, I don't know what his other options are, but he goes to Mount Seir. Now, in the grace of God, we discover in Deuteronomy uh, uh, chapter 2, I believe it is, we discover that God gives to Esau Mount Seir. God gives him that land, okay, in God's grace and God's kindness to him. And one of the things we're going to look at next week as we look at the genealogy is we're going to see how God has blessed Esau. And God has done all kinds of great things for Esau. But it doesn't change the fact that Esau has made some very tragic choices in his life. And the question that as I, as I looked at that and I thought about that, I thought in my own life, how oftentimes do I act like Esau? How oftentimes in my own life do I act like Edom? How oftentimes in my own life do I look for the immediate gratification and I'm unwilling to wait on the promise of God? And it's just an admonition to me to be willing to exhibit that act, to carry out that act of worship of waiting on God and saying, God, I believe you're good and I believe you love me and I believe you're worth the wait. Well, uh, we're out of time. Uh, and there's one other thing, one other point I want to bring up. So I'll bring it up next week. Uh, but, but this whole thing of Esau and Edom has a, has a profound significance for the whole story of redemption. Okay, So it's not just it's important to Israel that Esau is Edom, but it's also important to us as we study the story of Esau, we'll understand that Edom plays a significant uh, uh, role as a picture or as an illustration of what God's ultimate plan of redemption is. We didn't get time to get to that today. So we'll pick that up next week and go on and try to finish this chapter next week. Okay? one of the
1: things when you were saying earlier that Everything
0: really comes back to Genesis. That is why
1: there's
0: such an attack on Yeah, absolutely. it is to the Bible. Yeah, yeah. If 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 the world can discredit Genesis, then pretty much they've destroyed our faith. And that's why there's such an attack on the story of creation, and such an attack on the story of the fall. If there was no creation as Genesis records, there was no Adam and Eve. If there was no Adam and Eve, we do not have the story of the fall and we cannot account for man's sin and we do not need a redeemer. So it is absolutely foundational as Ginger pointed out. Okay, next week.